good morning. Uh, my name is Sonny Tedlachka, and uh, I'm honored uh, to be bringing the word this morning. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 25, so if you would, please open up your Bibles there. I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. So Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. And the context of this passage, of course, we've been going as a church, we've been going uh, through the parables of Christ. And Jesus gives us parables. They are stories uh, that he tells that have an ultimate uh, spiritual meaning that we are to grab a hold of and follow and uh, respond to. And this one here, this parable here, is no different. This is known as the, the, the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, some translations call it the ten bridesmaids. And that's what we'll be going over this morning. Uh, Jesus is going to give this parable after he was asked, just back in Matthew chapter 24, he was asked by one of his disciples in Matthew 24, verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, is my mic cutting out? I hear that? Is it okay? Okay. Uh, I'm going to read verse 3 in chapter 24 again. I apologize. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And then Jesus goes through chapter 24 and is telling about the end times. And there's a constant theme that takes place uh, throughout chapter 4, and we see it carried over then into chapter 25. If you look at verse 36 of chapter 24, Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels. In verse 42, therefore stay awake. You do not know on what day our Lord is coming. Verse 44, therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And then Jesus ends this parable that we're going to read about this morning in verse 13 with the same message. Watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour. That's the context of this parable. And so if you would, uh, I used to do this all the time uh, at our, our church in Rock Springs, and I'm going to ask you to do that again this morning. If you would, please let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I like to do this because I want to emphasize the importance of what we're digging into this morning, the, the importance of what we are sitting under this morning, which is nothing less than the authority of God's Word. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. 
And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together to go through it. We pray, Father, that you will just pour out your Holy Spirit upon us for understanding, for conviction, for encouragement. Use me as your servant and open our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus Christ's holy name we pray, amen. All right, you can be seated. So one of the things I ask uh, our, our kids whenever, whenever we do Bible study is we'll read a passage and then I'll say, what's, what's going on here? Like, let's just kind of summarize what's happening. And of course, as I said before, we read that Jesus is giving this parable in the context of uh, the, the end coming. Matter of fact, he starts off this very passage with that in verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be like. And so I've broken the message down this morning into these parts just to kind of give you an idea of what we're going to be looking at. Uh, I've titled it this morning, Are You Ready? Are You Ready? That is the call that's being given to us this morning. And I've got one context, piece of context we're going over, one imperative, five characters, three differences, and four tests. And so we should be out of here about 1.30 or so. That's okay with everybody. So that's just where we're going, all right? Uh, the message, of course, are you ready? The context being the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that right here at the beginning. Verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. And so this is what he's preparing to tell his disciples about. And he ends it then with the one imperative. Look at verse 13, which I had mentioned earlier, of course, and then just we read through. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. That's the command that Jesus has given from this parable. Watch, be alert, be ready. Be prepared, okay? So the context, the kingdom of heaven, the command, ultimately our takeaway from this is to watch, be prepared, be ready. And he gives us five characters in this parable. Again, a parable is a, it's a story. It's, a, it's a, a fictional story that's used to make a spiritual point. And in this story, we've got uh, no less than at least five what I call characters here, okay? Uh, the first would be the, the ten virgins. And in this context, Jesus was speaking uh, to his disciples in a, in a, uh, uh, about a story that they would recognize. In, in that day, the way I understand it is that when the bridegroom uh, was, was ready, he would go to meet his bride, and then he would lead her back to his house where they would have the feast uh, or the, the, the celebration. And so the bridegroom is coming to meet the bride. The bride's maids or the virgins, ten virgins, are there to receive the bridegroom. Now, interestingly enough, the, the, the bride specifically is not mentioned in this text, but don't let that throw you off. Uh, the bridesmaid's job was to, to escort the bride back to the groom's house. And in this case, the bridesmaids are representing, ultimately, the bride of Christ who we'll talk about soon, but is, represents ultimately the church. 
And so you have the first character would be the ten bridesmaids. And of the ten, five are foolish and five are wise. Okay, we're going to dig into that in a little bit as to what makes them different. Then we've got the second character would be the lamps, what I'm calling a character or symbol. Maybe is a better word for it. The lamps. So each of them had a lamp. Now, in that day, especially for a night wedding, uh, the bridesmaids, anybody of the wedding party would have their own lamp or their own torch. And as you walked back with the procession, you had it not only to light your way, but also as a symbol that you are a part of the bridal party. Uh, D.A. Carson had said that in, in, this, uh, in this time, culturally, that if you didn't have your own lamp and you were caught marching along with the procession, you would have been considered an, an outsider or, or a party crasher, okay? And so it was distasteful, to say the least, uh, to try to come along with the procession without your own lamp. It was proper to have your own lamp, hence the importance of each of these virgins having their very own lamp in this case. So the lamp is representative of this, this symbol that you are a part of the bridal party, or they are a part of the bridal party. The third character here would be the bridegroom, okay, the bridegroom. And throughout Scripture, the bridegroom, when it's used symbolically, is referring to God, or more specifically in this case, Jesus Christ. Uh, we see that in Old Testament text, Isaiah 54, uh, verse 5, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 62, this will also be in verse 5, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so, your God rejo so, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea 2.19, and I will betroth you to me forever. And as we get into the New Testament, we see it speaking about Jesus Christ specifically. In John chapter 3, verse 29, John the Baptist says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him, hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist referring to Christ as the bridegroom. And then in Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, and Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Speaking about his disciples. The day will come, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. He's speaking about himself. And so here we have the bridegroom. The groom is to come to the house to receive his bride and escort her back to his house. Okay? Now we see in this text, we're going to see that he's actually late in getting there. Um, that reminded me of... of our story to a, to a certain degree. Bernadette and I celebrated 21 years of marriage this past Thursday by God's grace. And so, yes, amen, amen. She's put up with me for that long. Praise God. At our wedding, uh, I remember we were sitting there, and it was supposed to start at, you know, this specific time. I think it was 2 o'clock, and we're waiting and waiting, and I'm like, man, is she coming? Like, what's going on? And, of course, she finally showed up, praise God, and I say completely it was worth the wait. So, amen to that. Here, the bride, the groom would actually go to the house of the bride, and as we see in the text, it's the bridesmaids who are going to be waiting on the groom in this case, and that does make a difference to the story. But the bridegroom here represents Christ. And then we have the, that would be the third, uh, third character of what I'm calling, and then we have the fourth character or symbol, which would be the oil, okay? And the big question is, what does the oil represent? We see that there is oil uh, to keep the lamps burning. Again, in the context of an actual wedi we wedding celebration or marriage celebration, 
they would need oil to keep the lamps lit. And so a lamp, uh, just if, if they had a torch, they had both torches and lamps. Uh, a torch dipped in oil, they say, would burn about 15 minutes, okay? So you had to constantly keep putting oil on it. Or a lamp specifically, as mentioned here, had a, had a wick that went into this oil. And that oil would only last for so long. And so you would bring extra oil if you wanted your lamp to last the entire night. And so that oil plays a role in this parable as well, symbolically. And then last, number five, is the marriage feast itself, the marriage feast, okay? And I believe that's pretty straightforward for us, ultimately pointing to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We see that uh, not only in, in, we see that in Revelation, uh, uh, or chapter 19, where here we see, we see an angel said, this is chapter 19, verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, Okay? And so this marriage supper, this marriage feast is pointing to the ultimate marriage supper with the Lamb, Jesus Christ, as Jesus puts it in context, this is the kingdom of heaven I'm speaking of, this is the end times I'm speaking of, when the bridegroom will come and receive his bride, okay? So we've got the context, we've got the imperative ultimately is to watch, be ready. We've got the characters here. And so now I want to see, like, what do we draw out of this, okay? And so there's three differences that I want to point out between the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. And in their differences, we're going to see exactly what Jesus is pointing out to us. First, the wise virgins, you see, knew when to get ready. Oh, let me back up one point because this is very important. The flask of oil, back to that. What does the oil represent? There are a lot of different opinions on what that oil represents. We see the wise virgins had it, the foolish virgin, virgins did not. Uh, one popular uh, thought is that the, the oil represented the Holy Spirit because symbolically throughout Scripture uh, the oil is tied oil is tied to the Holy Spirit. Um, however, I've, I I never could get comfortable uh, with settling on that because of the nature of the parable and, and, and what the oil or how the oil is actually used. Because in the beginning the foolish virgins had oil. They they, they it says that their lamps were going out. And so they had some oil there. And then in the end, they're told to go and buy some. And they do. They get more oil. And the Holy Spirit doesn't work like that. We don't see that the Holy Spirit is in us. And then we don't have the Holy Spirit. And then we have the Holy Spirit again. And, uh, and certainly you can't buy the Holy Spirit. Uh, Simon the sorcerer was, was rebuked for trying to do such. And not that this necessarily means that they're buying what the spiritual thing is. But that would be, uh, again, uh, probably an illustration that, that would go against what is taught elsewhere. And so I, I've had a hard time settling on that, never been comfortable with that take. But at a minimum, what we can say is what's said here in verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. Those who were ready. Who were those that were ready? None less than the wise virgins, the ones who had the oil with them, okay? And so at a minimum, the oil represents readiness, represents a heart eager and ready to receive the groom, okay? Readiness. And so uh, with that understanding, I think we get, again, just some, some rich um, uh, takeaways from this text. And so as I look, I want to say, okay, what are the differences between these two? Because I don't know about you, but, like, I don't want to be a foolish virgin. And in this case, the church in general is, is the, the bride. The church is the, the virgin, okay, the bride of Christ. And so men and women, we are considered together the body of Christ, and ultimately the, the, the bride of Christ. But I don't want to be foolish. The word here, it, it means, it means uh, Greek word means moron or stupid. 
okay? I don't want to be stupid. I don't know about you. So I want to see what's, what's different between these two because I don't want to be on that end of, uh, of the, the label anyway, the foolish virgin. So what are three differences between the wise and foolish virgins? One, the wise knew when to get ready, and they acted upon it. They knew when to get ready, and they acted upon it. Look at verse 3. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. So verse 3 and 4. The wise took flask of oil with their lamps. Okay? So they didn't wait until the bridegroom was there. They didn't wait until the call to say, hey, the bridegroom is on his way. Before they even left out, they prepared. Before they even left to go ready, get ready to meet for the bridegroom, they prepared. They were ready. They bought extra oil. They had this heart and this mindset that was geared towards, uh, like, I, my, my goal is to meet that bridegroom and to do so in a manner that he's expecting with our torches lit. And I don't want any time to pass uh, that's too long where I won't be prepared and, and, and ready uh, with my oil. Now, this reminds me of a, of a passage in Proverbs where Solomon is speaking about adultery. And he says, he speaks of a young man. He says, I watched through my lattice, the lattice work at this young man, and he's starting to head down this dark alley where the prostitute lives. And once that young man goes down the prostitute, he says, it's going to lead to his death, okay? She comes out, she's flirting with him, and ultimately it's a woman who leads him into adultery is what it actually is. But by the time he goes down that road, it's too late. It's too late. His defenses aren't strong enough to turn away from her. Where he messed up was in turning down the road. Where he messed up was controlling it whenever it could be controlled completely and not even going that way and protecting himself from falling into that temptation. And that's, that, I'm reminded of that when I think about these wise virgins. They didn't wait till it was too late, till it was time to say, okay, like now we're going to go get our oil. They didn't go down that road. They prepared ahead of time before they're even going to meet Christ, to be ready to meet Christ, okay? Jesus is telling us this parable for this very purpose. Right now, it's still, we still have time to be ready to meet the Lord. And that's one of the differences that we see with these two virgins. They knew when to get ready. They got ready now. Number two, a difference. They knew how to get ready, okay? They knew how to get ready. And by that, I mean they knew where to get the oil in this case. Look at verse 9. But the wise answered, saying, since there will, as the, the foolish virgins were asking for this oil, the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Buy for yourselves. We'd bought for ourselves. You go and buy for yourself, okay? So they knew where to get the oil. They knew they, could, they couldn't, in this parable sense, couldn't get oil from somebody else. They had to come with their own oil. And they knew where to get it. They knew where to find it. They knew where to buy it, Okay? And so this is, this is speaking to their readiness to receive the groom. As we carry that over into our own lives, it's not only do we want to be ready to receive Christ, but do we know how to be ready? In this picture, again, you've got two sets. Both the, both the, the wise virgins and the foolish virgins are considered ten virgins at the time. Both sets are at one time ready to meet the bridegroom. And a question that's asked, too, is who did they represent in this case? Who did they represent as the bride getting ready to meet the bridegroom? If the bridegroom is Christ, if the wedding supper is the wedding supper of the Lamb, then the, the bridesmaids would have represented the church or at least the professing church, the professing church. 
as I dug into this parable more and more, I was reminded by other pastors as well that there is a stark resemblance between this passage and what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, when he says, uh, not everyone who calls me Lord uh, will, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who has done the will of my Father. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not, you know, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And he'll say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I never knew you. These are people who are calling him Lord. These are people who are saying they did works in Jesus' name. And yet on that day, when they stand face to face to him, he'll say, I never knew you. Not, I know you no longer. I never knew you. That's terrifying. That is one of the most terrifying passages in Scripture for me. There's two things that, that, that those will hear. One, I never knew you. And one, welcome into the joy of your master, you good and faithful servant. Every one of us here wants to hear the latter. How do we make sure we don't hear the former? That's what this parable is about. You see, you think the five foolish virgins thought they were foolish? No. If they did, they would have done something different. They're like, we're here too. We have our lamps too. But they weren't ready. They weren't really all in for what it is they were called to do. They weren't prepared to wait out the entire length of time, no matter how long it took. They weren't prepared ahead of time before they set out. They didn't even know, it seems, to where to go get prepared from. They thought they could just get it from somebody else along the way. The third difference I want to talk about, which ties directly into this, is the wise virgins knew how long to stay ready. They knew how long. They were ready to stay there all night. They were ready to stay there until daylight if they had to because they wouldn't need a torch anymore. They had enough oil to make it the entire time. They were, they were there to endure. Jesus said it's those who endure to the end that will be saved. So where do you get this readiness? It's found nowhere else than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reality is this parable is specifically for us. This parable isn't as much for those outside the gathered group, the gathered body. Those who don't claim to be Christians, they know they're not Christians. Those who don't claim to love the Lord, they know they don't love the Lord. This parable is specifically for those who look the part. And the question is, are you actually ready? Do you have oil in your lamp? You, professed believer, don't check out of this just because you say, well, I go to church. Praise God. You see, ten of the virgins were there. They were all playing the role. They were virgins. They had their lamps. They were waiting on the bridegroom. They were all checking off the boxes of everything they needed to do. But when it came down to the test, they failed the test. They weren't truly ready. Their heart was not ready to receive the bridegroom. They didn't have extra oil, which would have kept them through. They thought they could get it from somewhere else, didn't even know where to get it, and they didn't find out about it until it was too late. There will come a time, brothers and sisters, when the door will be shut. The master will come to receive those who are his. 
and he'll bring them into his chamber, and the door will be shut, just like in the days of Noah. When the ark was closed, and as the rains fell, people who had been mocking Noah his entire life were probably scratching and clawing at the ark because it was the only thing floating and saying, let us in, let us in. But it was shut because God shut it. There will come a point in time, brothers and sisters, when it will be too late. The foolish virgins were cast outside. In other places, we see that those who were cast out, they're cast out where there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. Make no mistake about it, the foolish virgins here are a direct picture of those who will spend eternity in hell. Those who will spend eternity under the wrath of God. You see, all of us have a problem. We have a big problem. It's the biggest problem we could ever face in our life, and that's that we have offended a holy and righteous God. God said do, and we said no. From the moment we could choose between good and evil, we have all chosen evil. Paul says that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. And yet God sought after us. And that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, God the Son, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life on this earth, offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice, the unblemished lamb that was slain on the cross where he took the wrath of God upon himself and he paid for it in full. He says, it is finished. This isn't the wrath that he built up. This isn't the wrath that you and I built up. And yet he paid for it in full and said it's finished. And then he gave up his life because the penalty for sin is death. And he was buried. But three days later, he rose from the dead. And his rising from the dead proves three things. In Scripture, Paul says in Romans 1 that it proved that he's the Son of God. In Romans 4, it says he was raised for our justification. It proved that he paid for our sins in full. In Acts 17, Paul says, and it proves that he's coming back. That's what Jesus is talking about here. When he returns to receive his bride, who's going to be ready? Who's going to show themselves to genuinely be a part of the church? Not a part of the gathering here, but a part of the church at large. The reality is it's real simple. I feel like for a long time in my life, I was playing the part. I was saying I love Jesus. But very few things about my life showed it. Until one day a brother in Christ confronted me directly. Well, not I felt like it was directly. He was on the stage. And I was in the seat, in the chair. God confronted me directly. How about that? <laughs> with something I want to share with you guys, and that moves into the last part here. Four tests to see if you're ready. Four tests to see if you're ready. One is, what does your fruit say? What does your fruit say? This is the test that I got put to, and it broke me. This man went to Galatians chapter 5, 
And he said, now, all of those of you who say you believe the gospel, the message that I just delivered, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and he rose from the dead, and you're called to repent and believe in him for your salvation, to receive his righteousness and have your sins completely removed so that you'll be filled with his promised Holy Spirit, who is the seal, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Those of you who say that you've done that, you've experienced that, praise God. Now, what does your life say about you? Jesus says you will know them by their fruit, also in Matthew 7. What does your fruit say? So when you look at Galatians chapter 5, does your life reflect the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Or does your life reflect the characteristics of, of the flesh, those who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no stuttering there. There's no hesitation there. It's straightforward. So when you look at your own life, or if you ask somebody who knows you well to look at your own life, what category would they put you in? Would they say, most definitely, as you're working through it and growing through it, I see the fruit of the Spirit in you. Praise God. Or, more habitually, more as a pattern, I see the works of flesh in you. That right there broke me. Praise God that it did. My eyes were opened to say, I can't say that I'm a believer and then live like the world. It doesn't work like that. Jesus doesn't give us that option. John really confronts that in 1 John. Come on, how can you continue to live in sin? You're saying that you love the Lord. It doesn't work like that. Do we fall into sin? Yes. And as we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Praise God. But in your heart, as there's this constant desire to serve the Lord, what does the fruit of your own life say? It shows whether you're ready or not. Second test. Do you love the Lord? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So do, do you love the Lord? Paul says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. You see, we can get caught up in thinking that, as Pastor Mitch said earlier, that, that salvation is a relationship with Christ. It's not about a doing. It, we can't earn our salvation. We can't earn our right standing before God. Paul here says that, that if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed in in chapter 13, he talks about what love looks like. He says, in the context of spiritual gifts, he can, he, that, like, you can, you can have the faith that moves mountains, but if you don't have love, it's nothing. You can be a martyr for Jesus. You can give up your life to be, your, your life to be burned. And yet, if you don't have love for him, it was useless. It was in vain. Can you picture that? Somebody who says they've died for Jesus, and yet, God could see there was no love for him in it. 
Maybe it was glory for them they were after. So it's not the doing that earns anything, especially in and of itself. Not doing doesn't earn anything before God, period. Our faith in Christ and His finished work is what grants us everything. How do you know that your faith is genuine? By your love. By your love. Do you have a love for the Lord? Paul says here very plain, plainly that if you have no love for the Lord, let you be accursed, let you be damned to hell. That's scary. It's terrifying. It's real. Test your love. Is there a desire to serve Christ no matter the cost? Is there a desire to be with Him? Is there a desire to be in relationship with Him? Is there a desire to talk with Him, commune with Him, pray to Him, read His Word, hear from Him? If not, check your love and ask God to increase it. Ask God to give it. Ask God to grow it. Number three, I didn't know exactly how to word this, but bear with me. How does Jesus smell to you? Many will know what I'm speaking about here. How does Jesus smell to you? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. He says, who is sufficient for these things? When you hear about Christ, is it refreshing to you? Does it fill your soul with joy? Or when you hear about Christ, is it something that you say, okay, yeah, I know that. I checked that off. I did it. Let's go on to the ball game. Or let's go on to whatever else it might be. Nothing wrong with ball games. Unless they're replacing your love for Christ. How does he smell to you, figuratively speaking? Do you enjoy being in his presence do you enjoy spending that time with him? Do you enjoy hearing about him and talking about him and sharing uh, your, your testimony about him with other people? Hearing other people's testimony, how he's working in other people's lives. How does it affect you? Because it speaks to your heart. Listen, if this is ever going to be changed, now's the time to do it. Watch therefore, for you know not when he will arrive. Do you realize Jesus could come at any moment? He'd come while I'm speaking up here still. I wish that he would. The fourth test. Do you long for his return? Do you long for his return? Paul also says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, when, right after he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And then he says, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Can you say that and mean it? You see, the foolish virgins, they were there to receive the bridegroom. It wasn't like they had no desire to see the bridegroom. And certainly they probably wanted him to come quickly because they didn't want to run out of oil. Was it, was it something, though, that they were all in for? Were they in for the long haul, no matter what it took? 
Because they look at their own lives and their own representation of, of, of what they were doing there in representing the bride and say, I'm, I'm ready, fully ready to meet my Savior. I think about this with, with mine and Bernadette's uh, grandparents, our grandmothers, both before they actually passed away. Both of them were in bad health at separate times. And uh, I remember speaking specifically to my grandmother, but also to Bernadette's grandmother. And I asked my grandma, I said, Grandma, are you ready to see Jesus? And she just lit up in the biggest smile and said, Oh, yes. Oh, yes. My dad had that same attitude. But listen, brothers and sisters, most of us won't get this opportunity to make that decision at your death. My grandmother, for her sake, made that decision a long time before she was ill. She had that heart for Christ for as long as I knew her. How about you? Do you long for his coming? Look how David puts it in Psalm 27, 4. This is so powerful. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He's not just talking about, he's not talking about this building. He's talking about in the presence of God forever. To be with him forever. That's what I'm longing for. Now, do we meet God here? Absolutely. Or two or three are gathered in my name. Jesus is present. We meet God in the gathering. But David's talking about even something even, even greater than that. Being in the presence, direct presence of God forever. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Get that? This is one thing I ask for, that I can spend eternity in the throne room, in the temple with God, so that I can just gaze upon his beauty forever and inquire of him, meditate on him, learn from him forever, worshiping him forever. Is that your heart? Is that your heart? Right? We see, we see the context here. Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of heaven. We see the imperative he's giving us. Watch, be ready. If you're not, there's still time right now. Don't know how much time. Believe in the Lord today, as long as it's still called today. This is all you're guaranteed right now, this moment that you're in. Watch, that's the command Jesus has given us. We know the, the, the characters or symbols in this and ultimately the differences between the two. The wise knew when to get ready. They knew how to get ready. The gospel of Jesus Christ, they knew how long to stay ready, no matter how long it takes. You're in this for the long haul. How do we know if we're wise? How do we know if we're ready? How do we know if we're prepared? What does your fruit say? Do you love him? How does Jesus smell to you? And ultimately, do you long for his return? Brothers and sisters, ask yourself as you go throughout the rest of today, ask yourselves as you take time right here this morning still, even as we're singing, did you bring extra oil? Do you have extra oil? If, if not, go get it, right? There's still time, but we don't know how much time. We have no more guarantee than the next breath. We don't even have that. Jesus is calling us to be ready. He's calling his church to him. And we as a body want to continue to encourage and, and, uh, and equip and grow 
in this calling that we've been called to in being the bride of Christ and being ready for his return and leading others to do the exact same. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your, your boldness, Lord Jesus, and your directives to us, and your warnings to us, and your love for us. Please guide us to pour it all out, to be able to come before you and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, to be able to legitimately on our knees pray, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come back today. It's easy to say, it's easy to agree with, but actually doing it and meaning it strikes fear of the Lord in us, as it should. I pray everyone here this morning, Lord Jesus, will be able to, to pray that. We'll be able to pray that together. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come today. Come before we make it out of church. Please make sure we're prepared. In Jesus Christ, holy name we pray. Amen.